If you'll turn with me in the Word of God tonight to the book of John, please, in the chapter 14. John's Gospel and the chapter 14. None of you are going to recognize that picture on screen, so uh, that'll not be of any benefit as to guessing what I might be speaking on. Anybody here born before 2003? Uh-huh. I knew there were two in the front row. <laughs> Anywhere else? Not too many, no? Anybody else before 2003? Ah, no, come on, what was wrong the first time? There we go. You're not on your own. There's a few other gray-headed folk down in the back there. Yeah, I can't talk. This is the, um, actually the second time I've read this passage today because I was up in Ballymena in the afternoon and it was read at the funeral of my granddaughter, John 14. And we'll read the first number of verses and then the text that we took earlier today. I'm not taking it tonight, but we had it earlier. John 14 and 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then the verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Amen. We know the Lord Himself will add His blessing unto the reading of His Word in our hearing tonight. What we are going to do is take a look at Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. I know it's not exactly seasonal, and we're not talking about a Christmas carol or the story behind one, and I had considered that um, a couple of days ago when I was thinking about what I would do tonight. And then I thought, everybody's singing Isaac Watts at the minute, everybody's singing Charles Wesley, and you probably all know the carol stories. Your minister will likely be telling you them as he introduces the carols this week and next week. And so we'll deflect and divert, and we'll talk about Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, until the story behind that song. Black clouds were hanging low over the raging river that was swollen by rain into a treacherous torrent. There was a young mother at the side of the river, and she was tormented, despairing in mind, and in heart. And she knew, it's only going to take one small step forward, I'm into the river, and not only her, she was holding a three-year-old child of hers in her arms. Her name was Sarah Shepherd, and she believed at that particular time that death would be much preferable to her miserable existence. 
We're talking about the Cumberland River. It's in the state of Nashville, in the state of Tennessee, in Nashville uh, City, back in 1855. And we're talking about a 28-year-old mother at that time. But she was arrested and stopped in what she was doing that particular day by a voice just from up the river that came bouncing down to her from Mama Viney, a friend of hers, and with pity in that voice, she cried, Don't you take that which you cannot give back. She went on to say, Don't you see the clouds of the Lord as they pass by? The Lord has need of this child, and he will carry you on his chariot to a better place. Don't really know if she had Elijah, chariot of fire, in her mind's eye or not when she said that, but uh, back there in the plantation fields, the slaves would have used what they called sledges, and those sledges they called chariots. And they would have used that to collect the corn and the tobacco and, of course, fill the coffers of those who were in charge of them, the slave drivers and owners, uh, filled their coffers with money. So, Mama Vining, she told Sarah that God's chariot will one day, it'll carry her, her small daughter, to a better life and a more wonderful place than where they were at that particular time. So, with some renewed courage in her veins, Sarah Shepherd returned back to slavery, and she determined, well, I listen to Mama Viney at this time, and I will wait for God's moment in my life in a better time. There was no way of knowing at that particular time that what had saved Sarah from suicide that day in 1855, no way of knowing that the words of comfort spoken to her would be turned into in time a haunting gospel song. God will take you in his chariot. Nor could she imagine that 150 years later, and you'll not know the name of the guy here, I'm sure, Johnny Wilkinson, past era of rugby fans, England, and he was kicking uh, penalties for England there, taking them into the World Cup final and to victory as well uh, back in 2003, which is why I mentioned the date earlier. So, how was there a connection between Swinglow, Sweet Chariot, over there in the plantation fields around Tennessee, and Twickenham, where England would have been playing rugby in all of their home games? The story of how it began and how the song rose to prominence is a story of determination and a story of endurance in the face of hostility. Maybe sometimes we think in life, times are hard. This afternoon was a very hard time for my son and his wife and the family, and a hard time for both families. And maybe, for all I know, you might be thinking, well, I'm young, don't really know much about hard times, but I could be well misjudging if I ever thought that, because you could be saying to yourself inwardly, hey, I'm going through really difficult times right now times where I need to endure, and times where I just don't know how I'm going to endure. So the story of Sarah Shepherd, born in 1827 to slave parents in Nashville in Tennessee. Her parents were slaves of a family called the Donaldsons. They were one of the town's founding families. And while Sarah was still a child, the daughter in the house, Ferriby Donaldson, married Benjamin Shepherd, who was the son of a white planter. 
What they did then, it would be quite typical, they took the two houses, the husband and wife, and they brought the slaves of both households together into the one, and they took on the surname of shepherd in this case. They kept living there, and they were on that Donaldson estate close to what was a 700-mile-long Cumberland River. Sarah grows up, marries at 17, a young mixed-race boy named Simon, who happened to be the family's coachman. The couple hoped, and you're kind of hoping in those terrible circumstances against hope, that our lot will improve, our children born to the family here. Let's hope they don't be introduced to a life of slavery in a way that we have been. So Simon, the husband, hired himself out for extra work, and he was able to buy his freedom for, must have been a colossal sum back then, 1,800 American dollars. And he was promised as well when he bought his freedom that if you stump up a further $1,300 That will be your wife's freedom secured as well. So he's working to that end, hoping that he and his wife will get off the plantation and start their own life in freedom somewhere else. In February of 1851, Sarah gave birth to the couple's first daughter, frail little baby girl named Samuela, shortened it to Ella. But that happiness that they longed for was very short-lived. When Ella was just three years of age, Sarah discovered that the mistress that they're working for in that household was using cakes and, I suppose, sweets, whatever kind of sweets they had back then, other delicacies, treats to bribe the little girl Ella so that she was a spy, spying on, reporting back what her mum was saying, because Fairly, the mistress realized that this girl, Sarah, is not happy, trying to get off the plantation, is keen to have freedom herself, go away with her husband, Simon, and the shepherds themselves, the big family, they were moving to Mississippi. That meant that Sarah would be going with them. Simon stayed behind, and he was going to get involved in livery business at that particular time with a view that I'll still buy out the freedom of my wife. So she finds the family's moving away, the whole operation is going to move to Mississippi, she's going to have to go, her freedom is not going to be bought at all, and it was at that point that her will broke and she ran down with her little child Ella in her arms to the bank of the Great River and decided We're going in, the two of us. Nothing better than this. Our free life has been dashed. Then, of course, Mama Viney's words come down that riverbank about God's chariot. There's a bit of a dispute as to where the song Swing Low Sweet Chariot actually came from. One version of the story says that having gone home that night, Resolved, well, I'll still hang in there, do what I can, hope against hope, that Sarah Shepherd herself wrote the words. Others claim somebody else did. These are the words. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see coming for to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me. If you get there before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming too. The brightest day that I ever saw when Jesus washed my sins away, I'm sometimes 
up and sometimes down, but still my soul feels heavenly bound, coming for to carry me home, sweet chariot. Swing low, coming for to carry me home. What Sarah did was she went up and toe-to-toe with her mistress. She had it out with her, a dangerous thing to do, but she confronted her, and she said that if Simon would be allowed, okay, you've decided I'm not going to be bought out. If he can buy my daughter's freedom, his daughter's freedom as well, then I will remain a faithful slave in your house. But she said, if you refuse, then I'll take my own life and also that of my little girl. Now, on a nearby estate, they had heard the story, the reality, what had happened up there, that the mother herself who faced separation from her three daughters, she decided, right, we're not going to have this, and there was a bloodbath. She killed herself, slit the throats of her children before doing so. And so, fearing there would be a similar tragedy on their property, Fairly the mistress agreed, and Simon was able to buy the freedom of his daughter for the rather reduced fee for her of $350. And she was going to be able to go and keep her in Nashville. Sarah, meantime, has taken the mother with the Donaldson family to Mississippi. The new home was a bit of a shock because the slaves there weren't treated well at all. In fact, they were severely underfed, every single one of them. She looked at them, they're all dressed in rags, riddled with disease. Terrible suffering awaited her there, and she knew that. Her husband and her daughter did considerably better than she did. Initially, very successful, but then a problem arose because the livery business he set up went well for a time, and then they fell into terrible debt. And Simon knew that if the debt collectors come, what's going to happen? My daughter is going to be taken here. So he and the daughter fled to Ohio, Cincinnati, went to the black quarter there, known as Ragtown. Ella was sent to school. And she learned how to sing and how to play the piano. The prominent teacher of hers in that school, a white teacher, recognized her talent, agreed, I'm going to help you as much as I can to develop the natural talent you have. You have a great soprano voice, he told her. But he said, I can only help you on one condition, that when you're coming to me, that you enter into my house through the back door and only come at night. When Ella's father died of cholera in 1866, she began performing locally in order to help herself and to support her stepmother. Simon had married again, another freed black woman in that case. Civil war broke out in America in 1861-65, and right in the middle of that period, On the 1st of January of 1863, we have President Lincoln, and he signed the Great Emancipation Proclamation. Now, that freed slaves in confederate-held regions. But Lincoln's proclamation made slavery a central issue in the Civil War. Almost 200,000 African Americans fought for the Union Army, over the next two and a half years until the war was concluded. Ella was determined, I want to be a teacher. 
And she'd heard about a university. Well, it was a university in name only. Just a bit of a jumped up school and nothing more than that. And she saved up money, six dollars, took her five months to save six dollars. And she enrolled in this, it was then a struggling school. For freed blacks in Nashville, they named it Fisk University, and she went there in autumn of 1868. They established the school in an abandoned military barracks. Fisk was dedicated to training men and women like Ella to educate their fellow African Americans across the South. They were teaching those freed slaves skills, skills that they'd never known, how to count their wages how to write the new names that they'd chosen for themselves, how to read the ballot and read the Bible as well. And as far as the founders of Fisk University were concerned, secular education went hand in hand with Bible study. That was all very much part of the regimen in that school. The original teachers would have been missionaries, and they did sacrifice a lot of material just to work in the school, not much comfort there, giving up much, food was scarce. And in addition to teaching, whatever leftover money they had, they would dedicate to spread the gospel through missionary endeavors. There was a treasurer in the Fisk University, and he too was a zealous missionary, came down from New York City. They named him, and I remember way back whenever I went into ministry 30-odd years ago in Londonderry, and one of my ministers, senior minister looking after the congregation then would have been George White, who was a minister in Coleraine at the time. And here's a man, not him of course, George Leonard White, and he was the treasurer of Fisk. But really, he had a passion in life, and it wasn't handling money and counting change and fiddling with small change here to try and stretch the budget to do things that was pretty much impossible to do. His real passion was music. And he listened to the beautiful voices of the young slaves. And he thought, we could do something here and assemble a choir and maybe a chorus. And Ella stepped forward and helped him right at the beginning with that choir. He invited her to be assistant music teacher within a year. She became the first black member of staff in the Fisk University. And to try and keep the school afloat, George White thought, what we should do here is take a number of us on a fundraising tour of the North in America. But even before they got out of town, they met resistance because the parents, they were frightened to let the children go. White's fellow teacher said, no, you can't be doing that kind of thing, and they called it things like, it's vulgar, it's risky, and all of that. And there was an American Missionary Association that was looking after and funding that school, and they weren't terribly happy about the whole project of taking these former slaves, a group of them, and raising money. But White dug his heels in, and he said, no matter what, we are going we will be doing this. And he said, I'm depending on God, not you. So they set off on the 6th of October, 1871, with nine chosen singers. And they came with $40 out of the school's treasury. That's all they had. Ella Shepherd remembers not one of us had an overcoat, 
or a rap. Taking every cent he had and all he could borrow, Mr. White started with his little band of singers to sing the money out of the hearts and the pockets of the people. They decided there was the old underground railway that had been used by the abolitionists, and they thought, right, we'll start at every main location along that railway, and we'll sing in those venues. They were billed back then as the colored students of Fisk University, Nashville, Tennessee. That was their name that they gave themselves. Made their debut in Cincinnati. And despite a warm reception and everybody applauding, we had children in our main service tonight from Sandy Row, probably about 50 of them. And every time anybody got to do anything, they were clapping. So that was our carol service tonight. Plenty of applause. I actually joked with our clerk of session when he came up for the announcements. He was going to get clapped. I mean, imagine getting clapped for making an announcement. He didn't, as it turned out, but he was just about the only one who didn't. Well, I didn't get clapped either, but then I didn't expect it. But it was quite amusing. They were all clapped here in this concert that they had. But when the offering plates were all toddled up, they only had $50 at the end of the night. And that's how it was, night after night, just the same. Crowds loved their singing, but that love wasn't reflected in the offering plate at the end of the night. It barely covered their basic expenses. They sang the cantata of Esther, other pieces. I'm not aware of that apart from a name. You can maybe YouTube it and find there's somebody singing it there. That's more than possible. But then they went to Oberlin College in Ohio one night after two months of performances elsewhere, and they decided we're going to change tack. And instead of singing some of the more operatic style stuff, what we'll do is the songs we sang on the plantation, slave songs, that's what we're going to sing. And they did. And they sang Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Steal away to Jesus, and swing low, sweet chariot was sung, remembering the trials of Ella's mother, Sarah. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Still love to hear that. The Lord's Prayer, the Gospel Train, I've been redeemed. Go tell it on the mountain. Other pieces that we could well recognize. So, after starting with a couple of standard ballads, they went into these, associated, Ella said, with slavery, with our dark past, sacred to our parents, songs from the fields, melodies the slaves used to sing to each other to keep their spirits up when they were in days of extremity doing grueling work. And those slaves, that's why there's so much repetition in these songs, they weren't readers. And so therefore, the songs didn't have that many words, and the songs he composed were ones that everybody could sing easily over and over again. So along with the cabin songs and the old slave songs and the gospel songs that were coming through here, Ella taught the ensemble to sing these, and of course, as we mentioned, in memory of her mother, who she felt, I'll never see my mother again. Dear knows where she is. 
And all of a sudden, in Oberlin College that night, as he sang these pieces, there was no talking whatsoever. The singer said you could hear soft weeping. Most likely, the singers themselves joined in the tears. Powerful emotional occasion. That concert in Oberlin College became the turning point in this fundraising experiment. Word now quickly spread about this group of singers. They had a prayer meeting in November of the year in Columbus, Ohio. George White was praying for guidance during that prayer meeting. And in the morning he announced, we've got a new name. He said, we're going to call ourselves the Jubilee Singers. That was coming out of the Bible, Leviticus 25, that tells of the Jewish year of Jubilee that took place every 50 years, and they celebrated that with debt relief and the emancipation of slaves. They thought Jubilee Singers, just exactly the right name. They appeared at a very famous back in that day, American Preacher's Church. That was a fellow by the name of Henry Ward Beecher. And if I ever see books in the second-hand bookstore by him, by Beecher, I'll at least have a look and probably... I'll buy them. He was, in his day, the principal American preacher. If guys in London, as they were, were going to hear Charles Spurgeon preach, if you were in America, you'd want to go and hear Henry Ward Beecher preach. So after that time when the Jubilee Singers came to his church, he opened his purse, and he encouraged his congregation to give generously by saying, they can't live on air. They sing like nightingales, but need more to eat than nightingales. And that night, with his support, they raised $850. George White, leading them, announced a new plan. That was, we're going to build Jubilee Hall at Fisk, at the university site, and that'll be a stone and a block refuge, because people coming in from the Ku Klux clans were putting them under attack, and they needed to be defended there. Soon the group became so popular, they were turning away hundreds as they packed out venues. The American president up in Washington, Eusalys Grant, wanted to hear them, heard them. Mark Twain, don't know if your readers have been into Mark Twain, long time since I ever read anything about him. But he, in his letters, wrote, I was reared in the South and my father owned slaves, and I don't know when anything has so moved me as did the plaintive melodies of the Jubilee Singers. They went on tour out of America over to Britain and Europe, signed for a lot of royal families in the countries there, and were greatly encouraged by the reception they received from Queen Victoria on the English throne. She was so enchanted, she allowed her own personal portrait painter to paint a beautiful Victorian portrait of these Jubilee singers. And whenever people saw that, oh, they've got the pleasure of the Queen here, that just opened door here, door there, door somewhere else. People wanted to hear them. Gladstone, Prime Minister, the Prince of Wales, The dukes, the duchesses, the earls, all transfixed by the songs. We mentioned Spurgeon a moment or two ago. Pastor Charles Spurgeon's 
vast metropolitan tabernacle was full. 6,000 people packed in to hear the Jubilee singers sing. And across England and up in Scotland and over in Ireland as well, they were an absolute phenomenon. Books and newspapers charted their rise from slavery. Their songbooks sold out in the British Isles. And in the spring of 1874, the Jubilee Singers went home and they had another £5,000 from the British, $5,000 from the British tour to go towards a construction of their Jubilee Hall in Fisk. But the story is getting good. It wasn't always plain sailing. They still faced discrimination on the road and from the press. They had trouble finding hotels. I remember back in the day in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, you'd have had RUC officers. They would have turned up to certain shops and then just been told, keep marching, drive on, we're not serving you or your ilk. These folk were coming in their day to hotels and they were, ah, hotels fully booked. No room for you. Their clothes turned to rags. They were plagued with health problems. Contralto in the group, Mabel Lewis, told of their predicament. She said, shall I tell you about the different times when we were turned out of hotels because God took more pains with the making of our people than others? Is it because he stopped to paint us and curl our hair that we have to suffer for these extra tensions that have been bestowed upon us? Back in the day, the New York world called them trained monkeys. Others, I couldn't repeat how they were described ridiculously and terribly in those times. Life on the road took its toll. White and the singers, they endured rheumatism, bronchitis, chronic coughs, and worse, typhoid fever, claimed George White's wife. White himself nearly died of a hemorrhage. Contralto Minnie Tate sung her voice virtually to shreds. And despite all that they'd done and what they'd come through, the big project that they wanted, Jubilee Hall, is still only a hole in the ground, nothing more. Where was all the money going? Well, the problem was that the American Missionary Association that was funding the Fisk University, the difficulty was that that association was taking the funds the singers were raising and bailing their own institution out by using those particular funds. What did happen was that after 11 years, Ella went back to Nashville. What she wanted to do was track down her mum, Sarah. She did. And Sarah lived out her last days in Ella's house, and she died a free woman. In fact, when she was dying, they sang over that deathbed, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, the song that Sarah had previously been associated with. That mother, dying as she was, tried to join in, couldn't. But a couple of days later at her funeral, the quartet of singers from Fisk at that time they sang, Swing Loam, Sweet Chariot, 
at her funeral. Eventually, Fisk University has a new property. This hall is built, the Jubilee Hall, and things are going really well. But the question, how did the song get from those plantation fields in Tennessee over to Twickenham in England? And when the English run out onto the field to play, they're hearing from the stand, swing low, sweet chariot, boom out. What's the connection? Nobody can be really sure. It might have come, people speculate, from South Wales, and if you've ever been to a rugby match in Cardiff, you'll know the feeling in the stadium of all of them singing, Guide me, O thy great Jehovah. Fantastic feeling. Some spirituals would have been sung there as well by that same crowd, by meal voice choirs, initially then repeated in the rugby stadiums. What we do know is that this song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, made its first appearance at Twickenham in 1988 in a match between England and Ireland. At halftime, England were 3-0 down. But they had a Nigerian-born winger at the time, Chris Otte, pulled the game the other way with a set of tries, scored three. Supporters erupted, people say who were there, virtually spontaneously into this rendition of Swing Low when England won the game 35-3, so they were still singing at the end. Became the team's anthem. And a remarkable footnote that day was added to the story. Sarah Shepherd, Della, her daughter, the slave who turned back from suicide and eventually saw her lifelong dream come true. As we close, what is the hymn, the spiritual telling us? I looked over Jordan, what did I see? A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. They were thinking there's a palace built better than any colonial home we have ever looked at, built in heaven for those that trust God for salvation. Angels will carry us there, and though we're in hardship at this moment in time, what a joy to know we are heavenward bound. And of course, that's a vital thing for you and I. We can't be taken out at any moment. Not just old people who die, young people do too. Is heaven our goal? Second thing, God has a plan for us. He saves us, not to sit around, but to serve Him. Not to monkey about in meetings either but to serve Him, we are saved. If you get there before I go, tell all my friends I'm coming to, the brightest day that I ever saw was when Jesus washed my sins away, and I know for that He is coming to carry me home. The key thing as we live, knowing God's plan, press towards heaven, and we are to serve on earth. Tell all our friends 
about this wonderful place in the brightest day. I hope in your experience it has been in mine. One of my grandsons came to the Lord this week, quite incredibly, in the middle of grief, and he'd been reading Pilgrim's Progress and follow up the sequel, Christiana, full of deep questions, could hardly believe what he was asking me. For example, Granda, I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress, and the pilgrim had a burden on his back in the Pilgrim's Progress. But when I read Christiana, Christiana had a burden in her heart. Why was that? And it was a delight in the midst of sorrow to see him come to trust the Lord this week. And of course, as everyone else, only through the blood of Jesus. Everything does work out for our good. We need to believe that as God's children. Many times it's hard to see that. And you're thinking, these threads don't look like anything other than just pure tangled. How can we make sense of that? But all doors work out, even though sometimes we're up and sometimes down. We know at the end that we're not always in the mind to now. We have an assurance of heaven. And there all the mysteries will be revealed. The crooked paths made plain. God's chariot is coming. Coming for His people. Is it coming for you? Are you ready for heaven? Ready for home? Thank you. Well, can I, uh, on your behalf, just thank Mr. Brown for coming tonight and for bringing uh, that story to us of the origins of that lovely hymn, uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And uh, we do appreciate him very especially coming tonight. It has been a very difficult day for him and for his family. And we do continue to remember them, and especially Joel and Alice in our prayers, and I would ask for those who, who do know uh, that you would continue to think and pray for the family at this time. We do want to thank Mr. Brown for coming. Uh, could I remind you, um, supper now served upstairs, if you could take all your belongings with you, and uh, we do wish you every blessing for this period, over the Christmas period, and uh, that you would stay safe, and most especially that we would each and every one remember the reason for the season and uh, that we would uh, think of Christ even at this time. Whilst others out there are caught up in uh, the trivialities of Christmas, uh, that those of us who are believers would take time uh, to remember the reality of the Saviour and the reason for the Incarnation. So we'll just close a word of prayer now. We'll give thanks for the food, and then you're free to go upstairs. Father, we just still ourselves in the closing minutes of the meeting tonight, and we thank you, Lord, for the word that's been brought to us, even of uh, the story of uh, this hymn that has gone down in, in church history of late. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, for um, even the final words of it and how it brings us, uh, of our, brings us uh, to a realization of our need of a Savior uh, that there is a time coming uh, that uh, all of us, those who are saved and washed in the precious blood of the Lamb, will be caught up 
to meet thee and uh, we will be in glory with our Lord and Saviour. And we just pray for those who are in the meeting tonight, Lord, some backslidden of heart and others who know thee not. We just pray, Lord, that even over this Christmas season, they too would reflect on the meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas, and the reason for the virgin birth and the reason for Uh, that lowly manger and that they too would be pointed to the foot of the old rugged cross and that they would see the saviour who came to die for them we thank you lord for all that thou hast done for us and we just pray that you would keep us uh, ever uh, living for thee we ask it all in the saviour's name we thank you lord for the food that has been provided may we eat and drink to thine honour and to thy glory, and then take us to your homes in safety. For we ask it in the Saviour's great name. Amen.